Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Primary Care Podcast. It's your boy, Dr. Mark List. Before we get into today's episode, we're going to hit up, as always, the primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox, like we're going to start it any other way. Today, we're going to hit up a joke from the primarycare.com inbox. That's a place where you can send me your listener feedback, uh, articles you want me to review, uh, anything else you want to talk about, or if you just want to chat. Uh, we today are talking about uh, a joke that was sent to me, uh, Dr. List. What happens when you do nothing about a respiratory pandemic? I don't know, listener, what does happen when you do nothing about a respiratory pandemic? Your followers turn blue. That's a, that's that's a good one. I, I, I like it. It works on a couple of different levels. Uh, if you have any jokes or feedbacks or comments, send them to primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox, and uh, I'll read them or get to them. Uh, thanks, and uh, let's start the podcast. Primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, and medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced in my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Well, welcome back to the Primary Care Podcast, pod girls, pod boys, pod people. We today are talking about a a very interesting topic, I think, for primary care. And it's a topic, I kind of teased this last week, but it's a topic that we underdiagnose. You underdiagnose it, I underdiagnose it, we underdiagnose it in general. And how do we know this? Well, this is the point of the article we're talking about today. And the diagnosis we're talking about is something that you and I probably see Every day, at least once or twice a week, in our primary care internal medicine-based prod, po- uh, uh, podcast <laughs> uh, practices, uh, and, and that is primary hyperaldosteronism, or primary aldosteronism. And why we are missing this is that a lot of things that we are trained about primary hyperaldosteronism aren't always there. And, and the classic way that primary aldosteronism is taught is, is missing and it's missing key pieces of data, I think, how it's taught, how it's appreciated by family doctors and, and internists. And and this is a diagnosis that we are missing, and it's and it does affect our patients. So so let's let's back up, let's back the train up. Everyone hates you're you just probably listened to that intro and your eyes glazed over and you said, Oh my god, Dr. List wants me to listen to a podcast about primary aldosteronism. Can you get a more boring topic? So I am going to quickly review the bullet points, primary aldosteronism for dummies, because I I am not a nephrologist. I don't pretend to be a nephrologist, but I think that this is important to get the basics. So again, in the kidney, right, when the blood pressure goes down, normally you have renin release, which cleaves angiotensinogen into angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1 then goes through the ACE, the angiotensin-converting enzyme, right? That's why we block with ACE inhibitors to make angiotensin 2. Angiotensin 2 then goes to the receptors, and then it makes, if you're in the brain, right, that releases aldosterone, right? It also releases ADH, antidiuretic hormone, and it also acts as a vasoconstrictor on the tissue. Okay, so the vasoconstriction on the tissue is what we work on with ARBs, ACE, uh, you know, ARBs for blood pressure control, ACE inhibitors work on the ACE enzyme. Now, normally, when the blood pressure is high, you don't get release of aldosteronism, right? Because that cycle doesn't take place because you don't have 
run in production, which means you don't cleave angiotensinogen, and so therefore you don't get an elevation of blood pressure. But when you have blood pressure that is unregulated because you have this overproduction of aldosterone, right? Even when the blood pressure is normal, the hyperaldosterone production, this increased aldosterone production, ignores whatever levels of renin and angiotensin are, are in the bloodstream and is just continually produced, right? And there's many reasons for that, and we are not going to get into it, right? You can have adrenal lesions that produce it. You can have genetic diseases that produce it. You can have uh, other, other diagnoses that don't matter to primary care, right? But then causes resistant hypertension, severe hypertension. So aldosterone causes the renal tubulars renal tubulars, tubular, dude, uh, renal tubulars, tubules. Oh my gosh. This is why I'm not a nephrologist. Renal tubules, right? To reabsorb sodium and therefore reabsorb water, increasing blood pressure, increasing the extracellular space, right? So that's how aldosterone raises your blood pressure, right? It brings back, reabsorbs sodium, brings back water with the sodium, and then it kicks out potassium for electrolyte balance. Right, so classically, when I was taught about hyper primary primary hyperaldosteronism, I am. This is why I'm not a nephrologist. Again, so primary hyperaldosteronism, right? One of the reasons why you have all this extra aldosterone, you have this increase in sodium reabsorption, increase in water retention, and you're kicking out all this extra potassium. The classic triad is severe hypertension, or resistant hypertension, and hypokalemia. And so if you ever see somebody for, you know, new onset of hypertension, it's the main cause of secondary hypertension, not just essential hypertension, but secondary hypertension, right? And so it is part of some providers are taught to do basically everything on the initial diagnosis of, of hypertension, essential hypertension, right? The whole nine yards grab all these different lab panels, bankrupt the patient, really piss off the patient because they have to get all these lab tests done just because they have a new diagnosis of hypertension. But some of these tests and we're going to talk about today, might catch and should catch this secondary hypertension cause, which is primary aldosteronism. And we're going to talk about why that matters. But the article that I would talk about today comes from the Annals of Internal Medicine just recently here in 2000, 2020, okay? And it's the unrecognized prevalence of primary aldosteronism, okay? And I, I listened to Jennifer Brown, who's the primary author listed on this paper, I listened to her on a podcast from the Annals of Internal Medicine, and I thought that this was such a very interesting topic, and she spoke really, uh, really eloquently about this. I, I became really interested in this. And so what this topic did, what this article did, is they brought in just a truckload of patients, right, that were normotensive, had stage 1 hypertension, had stage 2 hypertension, both of those untreated, and then drug-resistant hypertension, you know, uncontrolled hypertension on medications. And... So they, in their study, did this oral sodium suppression challenge, okay, regardless of whatever, you know, aldosterone or REN levels, to confirmatorily diagnose primary aldosteronism. Now, we don't do that in primary care. That's not the diagnostic test that we're going to do. That's the specialist test for the kind of gold standard, right? And then they measured urine aldosterone, they did the other stuff. And so then they looked at the biochemical uh, results of their study, and then they diagnosed primary aldosteronism based on the urine aldosterone levels. Now, we are not going to be doing this in our clinics, but I was trying to talk to the study about how they diagnose these. And so what they found was that this idea that, you know, primary aldosteronism 
is this rarely diagnosed in some in most of the United States. Okay, depending on the study you read, I read as low as 1% of those with hypertension are diagnosed with primary aldosterosum. I, I read an article that said 4%, and then the, the highest estimate was 10%. Now, not that those are people who are actually diagnosed, but the idea that 10% of all of our patients with hypertension actually have primary aldosteronism. And I think that's important to think about because how many of your patients that you diagnose with essential hypertension probably have primary aldosteronism? Probably a ton, right? I think in my own practice, I have one patient who in my current load of patients that I have diagnosed with primary aldosteronism. Why? Because they saw me, they had blood pressure of 150 over 90 multiple times, and they had hypokalemia on their first BMP. And I said, oh, I think this is primary, this is probably hyperaldosteronism. And sure enough, it was, because they had that classic triad of, you know, pretty, pretty high blood pressure when they first come in and hypokalemia. Now, Dr. Brown, though, talks about on this podcast and in this article that many, many patients with primary aldosteronism don't fit that standard hypokalemic phenotype. And in this research study that they do here, they show that the incidence of primary hyperaldosteronism is much higher than you'd expect. In normotensive patients, right, patients without, patients without any diagnosis of hypertension, biochemically overt primary aldosteronism was present in 11% of patients with normal blood pressure, 15% stage one, 21% stage two, and 22% in resistant hypertension. So you have a one in five chance of your patients in stage two hypertension and resistant hypertension to have primary aldosteronism. That should surprise you and make you rethink how you work up and who you work up and how often you work up for primary hyperaldosteronism. Now, it is in the article, basically, they talk about the fact that this idea that primary hyperaldosteronism, right, is taught as on off. You have it, you don't have it. And in reality, these authors, and again, Dr. Brown on this podcast I listened to, talked about how primary hyperaldosteronism is not just an on-off. It's a continuum. And there are different phenotypes. And there are phenotypes with hypokalemia, and there are phenotypes without hypokalemia. And in fact, hypokalemia is probably incredibly rare, and that we're missing a huge chunk of patients who have normal levels of potassium. And in the study, you know, the average, you know, normal tensive stage one hypertension, stage two hypertension, who had aldosterone issues, had a potassium of four on average. And with a standard deviation that you'd have to be two standard deviations below the mean to get into hypokalemia. And so as a primary care doctor, if you're only working up patients for primary aldosteronism who on their initial BMP have have hypokalemia, you're going to be missing a truckload of these people. And, and, and why does this matter? Again, another kind of cool study that I just pulled um, because it was kind of mentioned in a, another one of these articles that was in here uh, was from the American Journal of Cardiology in 2017, so an older study, right? But their, their point was, 
Um, the prevalence, again, of primary aldosteronism and the clinical manifestations of primary care. Again, this is where they estimated you know, 6% with primary aldosteronism in the overall population. But again, that it's probably uh, that in their study, it was 3% to 4% in stage one, all the way up to 11% stage three. And this newer study clearly says, actually, it's probably a lot higher biochemically. Okay. Now, in this paper, this second paper, this 2017 article from American Journal of Cardiology, primary aldosterone patients, okay, for had significantly higher issues with target end organ damage and cardiovascular events. 50% rates of left ventricular hypertrophy compared to only 30% in the essential hypertension control. Microalbuminuria, right, kidney damage, 27% in primary aldosteronism, only 12% in essential hypertension. Cardiovascular events, 15% in primary aldosteronism versus 6% in essential hypertension, right? So, I mean, that's a number needed to treat to, to find and make a difference for cardiovascular events to, 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 to basically put you back to the baseline of essential hypertension of 10, right? So these are fixable, right? And the updated article on who to test, they have a really good guideline basically, but who should we test and who should we screen for primary aldosteronism now that we've said that it is a big concern? They talk about anybody with hypertension and hypokalemia, right? But that's only a very small subset, right? Double-digit probably percentage, but a small subset of these patients with aldosteronism. So who else, who, if they're normal kalemic, who else should we be testing for aldosteronism, high primary aldosteronism? Severe hypertension, meaning systolic greater than 150 or diastolic greater than 100 on presentation, or drug-resistant hypertension, meaning hypertensive still on ACE inhibitors, ARBs, calcium channel blockers, and diuretics, right? Three drug regimen, okay? Hypertension, who also somehow has an instantaloma on the adrenal gland, should be worked up. And here was an interesting one based on the update article. Hypertension and sleep apnea, which is a big chunk of patients, deserve a workup for primary aldosteronism. And that is something that I do not do Again, these last couple, these severe hypertension, these drug-resistant hypertensions, these instantalomas, these, these hypertensions with sleep apnea, very, very big chunk of my patients, I don't work them up. I'm missing those patients, okay? Hypertension and a family history of early-onset hypertension. So the patient said, oh, yeah, my dad's had hypertension. He's had it since he was 30. I've had it since I was 30. Um, or if they've had a TIA or stroke at a young age of less than 40 in the family, okay? Um, or anybody in the family with a family history of primary, primary aldosteronism also should be worked up. And anybody with hypertension with AFib, which again, I thought was pretty interesting, which I never do. Okay. So in the update article and these different protocols, right, the tests need to be, again, Dr. Brown in the podcast said, don't worry about the early morning, but it's preferable apparently. Okay. Uh, and most of the time talking about doing a plasma renin activity or plasma renin concentration okay and a primary or a plasma aldosterone concentration so you want to kind of measure both uh the algorithm that they talk about an update again it's a good update article uh called the diagnosis of primary aldosteronism uh just skim right to the uh, algorithm one at the bottom and again who you should consider and then Early morning sample in this article, again, Dr. Brown says probably not, doesn't matter that much. Checking an aldosterone concentration, checking a renin concentration. And then you want to look at basically who, you know, you have to have an aldosterone concentration 
greater than 10. And then a renin activity or a renin concentration uh, that's low. And then you kind of look for other things. And basically, if you get a sense that this patient has it, you can diagnose it. Or if they probably have it, they probably need definitive testing. And Dr. Brown in this podcast basically said for primary care docs, hey, just go just go send those to a nephrologist then. If you're that concerned about it, you want to get definitive testing, that's fine. Now, let's say you don't have access to a nephrologist or you're in a rural area without access to your patients can't afford it. If you suspect primary hypothyroidism, how are we going to treat this? Basically, you can just treat with spironolactone. And this gets back to recent articles in the last couple of years that talk about for resistant hypertension, the best medication oftentimes is spironolactone. And in retrospect, why is that? Well, it's because there's probably all these people with these different phenotypes of primary hyperaldosteronism that are probably going to benefit from spironolactone. So all these articles about talking about how, well, spironolactone is a great fourth fourth line. Basically, you have your ACEs, your ARBs, your calcium channel blockers, your diuretics, and then probably choose spironolactone. Why? Because it's really effective. Well, why is it effective? Because you can basically use it on any of these patients with these primary hyperaldosteronism phenotypes who are probably the ones with resistant hypertension on three medications. Um, and so again, I think all the research is kind of pointing us as primary care docs saying, hey, guys, you're probably missing a lot of these diagnoses. You're probably poorly treating your hypertensive patients. You're probably not you know, getting them under control when it's probably a lot easier than you think by just looking for the primary hyperaldosteronism, right? Looking for this or just going ahead and treating them with, spironolactone and monitoring potassium so you don't get hyperkalemic. But for these patients, it shouldn't be as big of a deal. Okay. So again, I uh, reading this article about the incidence being much, 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 much higher in patients, I thought was very eye-opening. I thought the idea of it not just being an on-off switch, a yes-no, but more of a continuum of phenotypes with different presentations in different lab concentrations, different biochemical markers, I thought was very interesting. I think about how this is absolutely going to change my practice. I'm absolutely going to be looking for this more. I'm absolutely going to be screening for this in those patients, again, with severe hypertension, patients with blood with blood pressure issues, and low potassium, right? And that can be spontaneous even before meds, or if you put them on a diuretic and it drops their potassium out of nowhere, like pretty significantly, even on low-dose diuretics, that's somebody who you should think about right? Uh, or, uh, again, severe hypertension, uh, drug-resistant hypertension, insulinoma, sleep apnea, uh, family history of severely on- early onset hypertension, all should be red flags. Also consider atrial fibrillation and hypertension. Um, all should be red flags for a workup. Think about it. Maybe change your practice. I know this is going to change my practice. Um, I am, again, over time. I apologize greatly your money back guaranteed on this podcast. Don't worry. Your check for $0 and zero cents is in the mail. Thank you for tuning in today. I really appreciated and really enjoyed reading about this topic, learning about this topic, because I think it's a big, big underdiagnosis in primary care that probably has big clinical impact, right? With appropriate treatment, probably is incredibly valuable for our own practices. So again, let's try and make changes. Let's see if we see improvements. Um, let me know, are, are you underdiagnosing? Are you overdiagnosis? Have you read this before? Have you seen this before? Is this something that uh, you think is valuable? Again, hit me up at primarycarepod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Dr. Mark List reminding you, you don't need to stay up all night, stay up to date. Thank you and have a very great week.